Hello there, this is Alistair Stewart of Pseudopod, the weekly horror fiction podcast, and you are listening to the Faculty of Horror. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West. With Andrea Subasati. And welcome back to a brand new semester. We are back from our break. We took August off, as we always do, and thank you for bearing with us. And we are back. We've got a ton of bags with a ton of weapons in them. You're all going to get one, and then we're all going to fucking rumble. Today we are going to talk about Battle Royale, a very notorious film, a very nefarious film, a very early example of a trend of extreme horror cinema coming out of Japan and just a fantastic film that stands up to the test of time. If you guys rewatched it like we did to prepare for this episode, you know that it holds up beautifully and is just as enjoyable and just as shocking and frightening as when it first came out. Yeah, it's definitely a terrific example of extremity in film. And I think you can look at Battle Royale as the beginning of what they call Asian extremity. And around the same time, you had auditioned by Takashi Miike and a lot of other great films that have kind of subsequently followed it. And it's also a different trend than what we see in J-horror. So whereas J-horror dealt with ghosts, creepy things, dark-haired women coming at you, this is about the pure brutality of human against human. So let's dive right in. Battle Royale came out in 2000. It was directed by Kinji Fukasaku, and it was based on the 1999 novel by Koshun Takami. And Koshun Takami was actually a journalist. This was his first book. This was his only published book, actually. He worked as a journalist after that, but he didn't publish again. And as the story goes, he submitted this book to a contest of some sort and didn't win because of its gory graphic content. But it went on to be adapted into manga three times and also this film as well as the sequel which we're going to talk about a little bit just a little bit I promise on in the film and I know we're going to get into the nitty-gritty a little later so I'm going to keep this summary really succinct. The film begins with a prologue telling us that in an unspecified near future Japan is hit with an economic collapse that has made everyone lose hope. Kids are running wild and boycotting school and the adults have started to fear them and so the government enacted the Millennium Educational Reform Act aka the BR Act the specifics of which are revealed later on. Then we meet Class B3. Class B3 used to be taught by a teacher named Katano who resigned after the kids stopped attending his classes and one of them actually stabs him in the leg. Class B3 does show up for the end-of-term field trip, however, only to find themselves gassed and taken to a remote island to participate in the annual Battle Royale competition. Now, they're greeted by Katano, who shows them a disturbingly cheerful video describing the rules of Battle Royale. <laughs> 
Essentially, the kids are given three days on the island to kill one another, and the last student standing gets to go home. They're each given a pack with a map, a compass, some food, and a unique item, which could be as useless as a pot lid or as deadly as an Uzi. To speed things along, each student is outfitted with an electronic collar that tracks their movements. Now, throughout the three-day period, Kitano will announce danger zones, and any collars within these zones at a given time frame will explode, instantly killing the wearer. In addition, the collars are all set to go off at the end of the three-day period if there's more than one student still alive. And to make matters worse, Class B3 is joined by two mysterious exchange students who seem to know exactly what's going on. So off they go, and the students all have differing reactions to their predicament, which is kind of one of my favorite things about the whole film. There's a couple who decide to reject the game by committing suicide. There's the class bully who eagerly hunts down her opponents. And then there's the class tech nerd, Shinji, who takes it upon himself to build a bomb and try to blow up the game's headquarters. The bodies pile up, and every time a student is killed, a caption appears to help us keep track. Now, throughout all this mayhem, the film follows a popular student named Shuya Nanahara, who is simultaneously grieving his father, who committed suicide, as well as the early death of his best friend Nobu, who was murdered by Kitano during the orientation. Nobu admitted a crush on a girl in the class, Noriko, so Shuya honors his friend by pledging to spend the entire game protecting her. The two befriend one of the so-called exchange students, Shogo, who reveals that he actually won Battle Royale before and knows a way off the island. After they defeat the other sadistic exchange student who joined in the game just for the fun of bloody murder, Shogo fakes the murder of Shuya and Noriko, so Kitano ends the game. Shogo's trickery is revealed, Shuya shoots Kitano, and the three battered kids board a boat for the mainland. Shogo doesn't survive the trip, and we learn that Shuya and Noriko are now fugitives wanted for murder. It's an incredibly nihilistic film. I mean, not only do you have the blood and the guts of these kids, these teens who are in this movie who legitimately look like kids or young teens, but then you have Shuya and Noriko escaping this whole thing, making a run for it, and all they can do is run. In fact, that's what they say at the end of the film. And you have the sense that they will always be on the lam and they're never going to be able to reintegrate into society. And in fact, which we'll touch on a little bit later, the sequel actually confirms that. So I think it's important to begin this discussion of Battle Royale by touching on the director, Kenji Fukasaku, who was a really... I'd say fairly prolific director in Japan. He did a lot of dramas, a lot of thrillers, and they're always very violent and kind of excessive. The impression I get from reading about him is that he was almost a little bit of like a pre-Tarantino, but a bit more exploitative. Now, Fukusaku is kind of known for really valuing the underdogs in his film. He really cares about the bandits and the thieves and the people of the underground and what they have to contribute to a story. And I think we see that very, very clearly in Battle Royale. And this distrust of society as a whole apparently started for Fukusaku when he was a kid in his teens and Japan was fighting in World War II and he was working in a bomb factory and that's what they were all told to do. Go work in a bomb factory. You're aiding our cause. And this factory was bombed by Allied troops. And as the bombs were falling, you know, a bunch of other kids his age were all working on these other bombs themselves. And then they had to crawl out from under each other to survive. That's right. I actually consulted a back issue of Room Morgue. If you're a collector, this is issue 26, where Battle Royale actually got the cover story. And it was at a time where Battle Royale was made, but it wasn't out in the U.S. yet. And this is pre-internet thievery and stealing. So there's actually even a sidebar in the articles, like where to get your hands on it (laughs) if you want to try real hard. Anyway, the article was written by Rumorg president Rodrigo Gudinho, and there's actually an excellent statement from the director at the beginning of the article that I'd like to read. He writes, I immediately identified with the ninth graders in the novel, Battle Royale. I was 15 when World War II came to an end. By then, my class had been drafted and was working in a munitions factory. In July 1945, we were caught up in artillery fire. Up until then, the attacks had been air raids, and you had a chance of escaping from those. But with artillery, there was no way out. It was impossible to run or hide from the shells that rained down. We survived by diving for cover under our friends. 
After the attacks, my class had to dispose of the corpses. It was the first time in my life I'd ever seen so many dead bodies. As I lifted severed arms and legs, I had a fundamental awakening. Everything we'd been taught in school about how Japan was fighting the war to win peace was a pack of lies, and adults could not be trusted. So as the story goes, this project was brought to Kinji's attention by his son, Kenta, who had read the novel and really wanted to make it. And then Kinji was like, no, how about I make it since I'm a prolific director with tons of experience. And Kenta helped out. He helped deal with the kids because at the time that this was being made, Kinji was 72 years old. So he was a little bit out of touch with the kids of today. So his son helped him out with that. And this movie, as a result, is so intensely believable and clearly a very personal project for him. And Kenta did also co-write the screenplay with his father. So I think you can see a really nice parallel between the father and son working together to create a really cohesive film. So as Andrea just said, and as she quoted, Fukusaku had an inherent distrust of adults, an inherent distrust of a society that would lead that country to war under these circumstances. Similarly, as with Germany, when they were trying to rebuild after the war and pay back all these debts and, you know, deal with this massive fallout of the things that had happened during the war, there was a big sense of the generation that followed Fukusaku to rebuild, to gain, to have things, to do better than the generations previous, to exercise the demons that had come before them. Now, what they did was build a pretty incredible empire. You know, there was a lot of wealth, a lot of prosperity. It was, frankly, a great time to be Japanese. It was a really prosperous time for this country. But then we hit the 80s. And as we've already talked about on this podcast, the 80s were a big time of excess. In the style of American Psycho, there was a lot of need. A lot of people wanted to consume, and they wanted to do so by any means necessary. So the banks started to lend out a lot of money, and they didn't care who they were lending out to. They thought, great, everyone will figure out how to pay. And then in the early 90s, people couldn't pay, and they started not being able to pay in bigger and bigger numbers. So that begins what is referred to as the lost decade. So from about 91 to 2000, it was basically the collapse of the Asian banking market. Everyone thought it was going to end in 2000, but (laughs) then it really didn't. And it continued on for another 10 years, and now we kind of see that the economy is now recovering, is now slowly crawling out of it. But it's really, you know, you're looking at two decades where Japan was in real financial restraints. There were fewer jobs for less people. The work was part-time. So all of this emphasis that was put on schooling, it was incredibly cutthroat. It was, you've got to do better than all of your peers. You have to do anything by any means necessary to come out at the top of your class to secure one of the few good jobs out there. Otherwise, you're fucked. You might as well just give up if you aren't going to try. And that was a big thing that Japan had. I I was reading some Japanese history of social history, and a lot of writers referred to the zero-sum mentality, that Japan could only prosper when another country failed. So it was very much an us-against-them, me-against-the-world kind of attitude. There was more emphasis on money and gain than on family and community and support. The zero-sum game is one of the great economic fallacies. It assumes that if one person gets rich, it must mean that someone else gets poorer. Well, that's reliant upon a static view of wealth. It's like a pie, the idea that there's just one pie and the pie can't grow. In market economies, in dynamic, open economies, what you find is that the pie grows. And this is very important because what that means is that everyone can start to get out of poverty. That's right. And that dog-eat-dog attitude was really interestingly explored in the film in the metaphor of the basketball game. I remember the first time I saw the movie, it's bizarre. The movie is strange. Tonally, it shifts from really dark satire to really weird deadpan comedy, and you're not really sure what to make of it, but you just go with it because where it's good, it's really great. But all this basketball footage and all these metaphors of playing the game, at one point, Kitano specifically says life is a game. And I feel like 
to kids of this age who only know playing basketball. And you see in the flashbacks of the basketball game that the key players in Battle Royale are the ones who refuse to kill each other as the Battle Royale game dictates because the life game that they know is teamwork and coming together and that's what put them on top. So I thought that was a really interesting way to show that metaphor. And as we see Japan essentially descending into its decline and we see that doggy dog mentality, what we have is a really interesting crisis in the younger generation. So the children of you know, the capitalists and the people who are really thriving in Japan. When the economy crashed, these kids were left to pick up the pieces and fight and survive. But there was a report in the New York Times that from 96 to 1999, juvenile crime was heavily, heavily on the rise. It was even doubling in some cases, the amount of crimes they were seeing versus previous years. And you also had things like the Japanese courts trying kids as young as 16 in the adult courts, then they lowered it to 14. And if you're interested in these kind of situations and this mindset, there's a really terrific book that I found called The Japanese High School, Silence and Resistance, which came out in 1999. We'll post a link in this episode description if you are interested. Shoku Yaniyama cited two very particular instances which can be seen as aggravating this younger generation. And one happened in 1985, and a class went on a field trip, and it was very cold out, and one girl had washed her hair in the morning. And for some reason on this school trip, they were not allowed to use hair dryers, but they had to go out for a walk or to go do something, and she really wanted to dry her hair so she wouldn't be cold. And the teacher got so mad at her, he actually beat her to death with the hairdryer. And then there was also a case in 1990 where a teacher was very, very particular about his students arriving on time. And the school had a really big gate and he would always shut it right at 830. And everyone who was in was in and everyone else who was out and couldn't make it, you were out for the day. Now, one girl was just running right at 8.30 to try to get in, and she was just passing the gate, and he shut it on her, apparently hitting her in all the right places, killing her instantly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's um, this book, again, The Japanese High School, Silence and Resistance, is nearly as terrifying as Battle Royale. <laughs> You're probably thinking a Japanese school is like, oh my god, sexy girls, oh my god, love, oh my god, senpai, blah blah blah. No, I lived in Japan all my life, 0 to 18, and not even once that actually happened to me when I was at school. There was no love, there was no senpai, there was no freaking holims, there was no booby girls in freaking tight outfits. It was just school. If you get to school later than 8 o'clock, you're usually mocked as late to school. And when you get lots of late to school. It's not good for your permanent record. And the funny thing is, I will always go to school late. I'll be playing games all night long, playing FPS shooting games, like, you know, you gotta get those levels, unlock those snipers, yeah! When I wake up, I'll look at my clock, and it'll be 8 o'clock, and that's the time that well, all the kids are doing, like, calling their names and stuff like that. And I'll be like, oh no, I should go get breakfast. So this theme of forced competition as control is very present in the movie. It's present in the book as well. In fact, I might even argue that it's more present in the book. The book takes place in the fictional version of Japan called the Republic of Greater East Asia. And Battle Royale was actually for military research purposes until it's revealed later in the story that it's actually intended to terrorize the population because the results of the battle are televised on TV. And we're going to talk about that in more depth shortly. But another important theme is the loss of innocence as harshly as possible. And with regard to the loss of innocence, I wanted to talk a little bit about adolescence and what it is, because within sociology, adolescence is actually understood as a social construction. Now, if you look back to pictures of kids pre-1900, you'll notice that they look like little adults. They're wearing essentially the same thing that adults wear, just little miniature versions of them. They're so cute. Anyway, kids back in that day worked as soon as they were able to work. As soon as they were physically able to work, they would take up the family trade and they would just get the fuck to work. And there was no teenage adolescence. You were an adult when you went through the reproductive stages of puberty, and that's what adulthood was. It was only when the Industrial Revolution came around that Americans started treating kids as their own category and decided that they should be pooled together and kind of raised en masse so that 
that adults could work. It was just a very practical decision. And that was also a time when sentimentality of children became a thing. You kind of realize that adulthood really fucking sucks. And when you're a kid, you don't have to worry about that stuff. And so that innocence and that desire to play should be nurtured and cherished and encouraged. And then child labor laws emerged in the 1840s, and they started at about age nine and went up from there. And they kept going up because kids were working for cheap because they were kids, and adults didn't like that. And that's one of the reasons for an institutionalized mandatory school system that went all the way up into high school. In later years, it became more of a university prep thing, and you started learning things that maybe you wouldn't really need in everyday life. I'm looking at you, algebra. But... There were things you needed to know should you want to go on in math or whatever. And I I don't know. I guess teachers are going to argue for maturity of linking pathways in the brain and stuff like that. Now you can do a Ph.D. in, like, English literature and never leave it. So the idea of teenagers, like, there are obviously biological factors that define adolescence in terms of puberty. You start growing hair where you didn't grow hair before, and reproductive maturity is a big part of it. But culturally, nowadays, teenagers are occupying a really frustrating transition to be biologically mature and yet essentially incapable of taking care of yourself because you have no work experience, you have to go to school. And a lot of the social factors that define adolescence and the barrier between childhood and adulthood are socially defined. For example, having to be 16 to get your learner's permit to drive, having to be 18 to vote, 19 to drink. These are really arbitrary numbers. We've all met teenagers who are way ahead of their time, who can be taking care of themselves when they were 15 years old. And then you've met people who are shitheads well into their 30s. But we just kind of had to pick these numbers and these parameters are mostly bullshit and they just came out as an average. And that's what we understand teenagers to be today. Four years of film school for this? So because teenagers occupy this frustrating space of being independent and yet being totally dependent, it causes this schism between kids and adults. So adolescents are really scrutinized carefully and controlled and really problematized. And as a result, they tend to act out, and that's what forms youth culture. There's a really specified set of vocabulary and tastes with real emphasis on clothes and music and dating because all of those are identity-based dimensions that a disenfranchised person would really give a fuck about. Now, with regard to the schism that I was talking about, the gap that is created between kids and adults, they've occurred throughout history, definitely in times of social turmoil and upheaval and periods of great change. So for an example, I have here the flappers of the 1920s. In the post-World War I era, women had gotten a taste of the workplace. They'd gotten a taste of independence and doing like the men do. So the flappers were out there drinking and smoking openly, which signaled a big break from the old value systems. Then you've got the hippies in the 60s. And for a really interesting look at hippie culture and the schism between the hippie generation and the generation that came before it, I really can't recommend strongly enough the podcast called You Must Remember This. It's a podcast that was recommended to me by a friend of mine. I know Alex is also into it. And I listened to her series on, it was about the Charlie Manson murders. So it wasn't actually about 60s culture and society, but she really sets the stage so clearly. It's excellent. So again, this was a significant break in values, sex, drugs, anti-racism, spirituality, politics, and most importantly, perhaps, anti-war. Now, it's important to remember that World War II dropped some serious fucking bombs on Japan, and the morality of which was contested even over in the U.S. Japanese youth were understandably peeved at losing so much due to a conflict they were born into, which really informs Fukusaku's feelings going into this film. And it's interesting to talk about youth culture as a means of revolution, because That's what it is. That's what, when we are young and idealistic, we look at our parents. And most of the time, even if we love our parents, we say, I'm not going to make the same mistakes as you. And you want to do better. You want to do something different. You want to, like, fucking live in a Zach Braff movie where everything is, like, great. 
that's never quite happened in Japan. I'm not a Japanese historical expert, but in the research I did in prep for this episode, some interviews I listened to by different people involved with the film, there hasn't ever really been a Japanese social revolution. You know, you've got the American Revolution, you've got the French Revolution, you know, both of which you could argue had certain successes, but ultimately kind of maintained a status quo. Japan never had that because even though those other revolutions failed, they still instilled a sense of revolution, a sense of change in the air within this history. And Japan never had that. They kind of had little uprisings and things that happened here and there, but they were always quelled so quickly. And I think what you see when you look at Japan from the early 90s through till present day, there is still so much unresolved because you have Fukusaku's generation who came out of World War II were absolutely decimated by what they were born into. Their children who had all this prosperity, who had all of these opportunities, and then through some fault of their own, you know, it's a very murky territory when you get into banking, but that whole system just fucked up and imploded in the worst way. And so it got put onto the next generation. So it's no surprise that Fukusaku so deeply identified with the kids of this generation. And I think a lot of people at the time, and even still when I read reviews and all the other writings about this film, which there are a lot of, they love to kind of make a point that Fukusaku was 72 when he made this film. And it was essentially his last film, unfortunately. But, you know, we look at one of the big summer blockbusters this year, Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller was 70 when he directed that. And it's one of the most badass, kinetic movies I've ever seen. And I think there is that sense of with wisdom, with time, you get so much perspective and you see the world so much clearer. So you can really pinpoint these moments as this is a time when we need to say something. And another thing that really complicates this whole film is that Kitano, who is the teacher who agreed to allow this class to participate in Battle Royale, the teacher who was actually with them on the field trip, opposed the Battle Royale, and he met with a grisly death. But Kitano, you really feel his personal outrage at how dare these kids spit in the face of that which came before them, even though they fucked it up, even though he seems to readily admit that the world is fucked up nowadays. He is just so angry and personally slighted and would rather see them kill each other than actually try things their way. And it's so fucked up because he's really the only consistent adult presence these kids have. The only other adult we see in the film is Shuya's father, who commits suicide, again, very early on in the film, and abandons his child, for better or for worse, and leaves him adrift in this world of deep, deep uncertainty. That's right. So Shuya's mother abandoned him as well, and then his dad commits suicide, and there's flashbacks with him and his father at a restaurant where his father is just, he can't find work, he is utterly hopeless, and just checks out. Parenting is mentioned obliquely throughout the film in really interesting ways. Going back to Kitano, Kitano, by the way, wasn't written as Kitano in the film. The teacher had another name, but the actor who plays Kitano is a very famous actor for portraying this comedic, nihilistic deadpan. And Fukasaku really wanted to bring that into the film, and so he imbued his character with these traits, and I think it works so beautifully. I'm so glad he did. But there are scenes where Kitano is receiving phone calls and arguing with his sister for being a shitty son to his ailing mom. And his mother is dying, his sister's like, where the fuck are you? And he's like, I'm working, I'm doing really important things, it's a big deal, well, fuck you too. So I feel like that was almost a nod that... This is nothing especially new. Generations are always going to have some kind of resentment for no respect and you're not doing things my way and this isn't how you were brought up. So that came up with Kitano and it comes up again at the end after he's shot, which I think is purely comic relief.
In addition, the character Shogo Kawada, who kind of takes Shuya and Noriko under his wing, he mentions really flippantly, yeah, I know how to do this, my dad was a doctor. Yeah, I know how to cook this, my dad was a cook. It's like a sarcastic nod to the fact that the most useful things that you learn that you should be learning from your parents, you kind of don't. And we never really get resolution as to what the hell Shogo's dad was, so every mention in the film of their parents is their parents failing them. I feel that in watching this movie, there are two groups that are truly successful in this film, and that's Shuya, Noriko, and Shoko. Well, yeah, essentially the three of them win. There are a couple instances where part of the tragedy of the film is it seems like a group is doing everything right, and one little instance of paranoia, one suspicion is what brings it all down. And I think it's really interesting that especially Shuya and Noriko get two defensive weapons. I I thought it was super interesting, all of the weapons the kids got. That might be one of my favorite parts of the movie is all of those reveals. I think they're fabulous. But they get defense weapons. Shuya gets a pot lid, which you can essentially use as a shield, and he does. And then Noriko gets binoculars so she can surveil and watch and see what's going on outside. Right. They both actually end up using their weapons defensively later. Despite kind of looking at each other like, what are we going to do with these? Have you had my cookies? No. And then Shogo, who helps them and kind of shepherds them through this game. It's, you know, nice when you see that these kids will just trust. And it is that trust that leads them through the game. Another group that I thought was really interesting in that same dynamic were the hackers, who facilitate a lot of that win in the end for the other kids, even though they die very tragically. They work together. They support each other. And they achieve their goal. They hack the system. And once again, the head tech nerd, his name is Shinji, and he says, this was my uncle. My uncle taught me to do this. My uncle passed down this trigger. So that was kind of another, it's not his dad, it's his uncle. It's a little bit outside of his direct familial line, but still gleaning the knowledge you need from somebody outside the directly familial line. They are the best example of kids who did everything right, only to have it go shit fuck right in the end for no reason at all. I know. I've seen this movie a few times now over the years, and each time I watch it, I keep thinking that these kids will just get out of it. They'll make it because they're so smart. It's crazy that you don't see it coming. Like Amid all this death, for them to have a computer and be able to plug it in and actually hook up with things. Like, it's so unbelievable, but you go with it because you want them to be able to do it so bad. And then there are the two girls who, early on in the game, use one of their weapons, which is a megaphone, and announce that they think everyone should just work together and we'll stop them and it'll all be fine. And, oh, one of them has a crush on Shuya. And then, of course, they get horrifically gunned down because they've drawn attention to themselves. Right. I love how crushes play into this movie so strongly. It is so believable. These 15-year-olds, when you're 15 years old, your crush is your life. It's your world. Life is life and death. Like, everything that happens, it's life and death every day. And I love not only how much crushes play into it, but how much fucking plays into it. Like, there's a couple scenes where guys are like, we can just fuck. Like, we can fuck right now, and it's cool. And the girls, you know, are... Like, no, that's weird. But I like that there was that kind of like, well, baby, we're all just going to die. There's also some really sincere depictions of love. You've got this character named Sugimura, and Sugimura's item is a tracker. And what it does is it detects nearby callers. And while he could ostensibly stay the fuck away from everyone, he is probably the best equipped to just hide and wait all of this out until there's only a couple of people left or something, if he was strategic like that. But he's not. He decides to use his remaining hours to find his best friend, and the girl that he secretly loves. And it's a very moving couple of scenes where he finds them both. I mean, his tracker doesn't identify who he's looking for, but he just searches and searches, and he finds Shinji in them, and he finds Shuya, and he's like, ah, sorry, gotta move on, I'm on a quest here. 
And these two kinds of love are actually very mature depictions of love. They're not crushes. They're totally selfless, which is what a mature definition of love really is. So it's crazy that amid all these crushes and all this childish nonsense, there is one very mature member of the group who gets shot. Who ultimately gets shot by his crush. Yeah. Devastating. <laughs> but I think another interesting example of a microcosm of society in Battle Royale is those girls in the lighthouse. I mean, they are full-on plain house. There's a lighthouse on the island. They've shacked up in it and are, like, making food and joking around and asking what they're all making for dinner and, and taking care of Shuya when he's injured. And it all dissolves into a bloody mess within minutes. And I think it's such a great little sequence in the film that just illustrates how silly some of these systems, some of these societal expectations we put on ourselves can be. They, they fall apart like that. So I feel like we've brought up plot points that we found interesting, that we wanted to discuss. But I also mentioned that there are elements of this movie that are just bewildering. In the past, in episodes when we don't understand something and we mention it, we get such great theories from you. So I'm hoping this is the case. We need to talk about Kitano's painting. Now, flashbacks reveal that Kitano and Noriko had a special relationship. We don't get a whole lot of backstory on Noriko's parents if she had kind of daddy issues that she might have reached out to Kitano for. We do know that when Shuya's friend Nobu stabs Kitano in the leg and drops the knife, Noriko grabs it and uh, it comes into play later on that she's possessing the knife, but it's never really clear why she would want to conceal that from Kitano when Kitano still knows full well who did it. And it's also important to note that Noriko was the only one who showed up to the class when Katano taught them. Everyone else like writes this kind of crude note on the board saying, oh, we've skipped off for the day. And she shows up a little bit late, like effusively apologizing. And he just kind of like looks sadly at her and like walks out. I guess that's it. She was the only one to show up, so he had a little bit of hope for her. Ergo, he hoped that she would survive Battle Royale, which if you've met the chick, holy shit, it's a glory that she did. Now, inevitably, in any discussion of Battle Royale, we're going to have to talk about The Hunger Games. Now, for horror fans, when The Hunger Games came out, it was so obvious that we've heard this story before. This all seems very familiar. Suzanne Collins' book came out in 2008, and the author denies knowing about Battle Royale, which isn't impossible, I have to say. There's a lot of stuff on the internet out there saying, how could she not? But the fact of the matter is there are other movies out there that are suspiciously similar and delving into the same kind of thing. I mean, the precursor that everyone's going to mention is Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies was written in 1954, a really seminal classic English literature piece about the nature of humanity, essentially. It's about these boys who get marooned on an island and all sense of order begins to collapse until they're essentially killing each other and chaos reigns. Yeah, and I'd say even further than that, you know, we can go back to the story, The Most Dangerous Game, and of course that is man. Man is the most dangerous game, and it's about hunting people. And we can go even further back and talk about the Roman Colosseums, and we can talk about bread and circuses, the notion that if the government supplies the people with enough food and then entertains them with enough things, you know, then that's enough. They don't need to do much else. They can quell and distract their people. That's right. So having established that anyone will kill if pushed hard enough, and having established, thanks to the Roman Colosseums, that it's pretty fucking interesting to watch, actually. It's pretty goddamn entertaining. Then you have movies like The Running Man, which was written in 1982 by Stephen King and adapted to film in 1987. Now, the book, the Stephen King book, The Running Man, is about prisoners, but they're actually kind of loosed in society. They're not set into an arena, and then there's a pack of hunters that are hunting them down. The movie obviously takes everything to a garish extreme where it's essentially a cross between a reality TV show and a game show 
which reality TV was starting to emerge at about that time, but game shows were a really big deal. And so the two kind of coalesced to make this very quotable Arnold Schwarzenegger pulpy action movie. He is Sub-Zero, now Plane Zero. But it takes that reality TV show element that we see in both Battle Royale and in The Hunger Games. Now in Battle Royale, it's kind of a hole that Alex and I were talking about prior to recording this. Yeah, I had to ask Andrea to make sure I hadn't missed something and that I was kind of right in my assumptions. So in the very beginning of the film, we see this reporter who is amid a frenzy of reporters. Oh, and she's breathless. She's frantic trying to get a glimpse of the Battle Royale winner. And oh, look, it's a little girl. Oh my God, she's smiling. Can you believe that? She's smiling. So we get the sense that the Battle Royale is known by adults. They know that it's happening. The parents are notified when their children are being sent off to Battle Royale, and so they might just be a little bit extra interested. But in spite of all the heavy surveillance of the kids throughout the thing, it doesn't seem like the entire killing is televised. It seems like they're only interested in the aftermath. They're only interested in the victor, which I thought was really interesting because that's war propaganda. You don't want to see bodies piled up. You want to see glory and heroics. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why I was confused almost every time I've watched this movie is that the kids have no idea what Battle Royale is. They are shocked. They are like, what the fuck is going on? As it's being explained to them, you know, it's a great filmic device to have that video play and to explain all the rules so that we as an audience catch up with them. It puts us very much in the kids' mindsets, but I have a problem understanding why an entire society would have a vested interest in the outcome of these games and the kids who it affects would have no idea that this was happening. Another little problem I have throughout the film is, you know, certain kids throughout the game would just always be like, why don't? Not me. And I'd be like, have you been in the last hour of this movie? Like, that's that's what this is about. It's only going to end one way. So just pick up your gun and try to shoot someone. I found that element kind of frustrating. And it, it just, I don't know, if someone out there has an answer, I would love to hear it. So please, please write us, comment, let us know. It's definitely a stretch because when you think of TV and you think about the segment of the population who are really up to speed on the kind of junk TV that Battle Royale would be. But then again, I suppose if it's a military thing, I don't know. I actually stayed away from the Hunger Games for quite a long time. And then eventually, when I was very hungover one day, watched it on Netflix and and actually really enjoyed it. And I've seen um, all the subsequent movies. And I thought they were fun. They were interesting. I think Jennifer Lawrence is actually a really great actress. And it's nice to see her do that. And it's nice that it's such a strong character for a lot of young women to have. And I'm very thankful for it. But for me, The Hunger Games has so much more to do with that performative element. And it's such a critique of media. And it, in many ways, it's incredibly smart. And while Battle Royale has that element of propaganda, it, to me, isn't necessarily about it. It just has that one scene, whereas Hunger Games is all about propaganda. So I personally, I don't think they're the same. I come out of watching each of these movies with such different takeaways that I've never quite looked at them the same. I understand where the comparison comes from, but they feel so different to me. I agree with that, and a lot of what I've read is The Hunger Games ripped off Battle Royale. And I take issue with the term rip-off. To me, a rip-off, an Americanized rip-off, is let me in. Yeah. That is a rip-off. That is scene-for-scene, scene, plot point, watered-down bullshit. It's a rip-off, whereas I feel like The Hunger Games is adequately Americanized. It reintroduces similar concepts, but in a completely different context. And I think it's important, maybe we'll touch on this now, to talk about some of the reasons why Battle Royale only got an American release because of the Hunger Games. So Battle Royale came out, it did some film festivals, it got great reviews, people were really stoked on it. In Japan, it ignited an entire conversation in Parliament about the nature of violence in film, and should these kids be allowed to see it, and what should happen with this film. Eventually, after its initial release, they did an edited down version of the film to take out some of the violence, but ultimately it was so that the age of the characters in the film could go see it. That's right. That was really important to the director. He fought very hard for that because he made it 
for the kids. Then, of course, you know, when you have big buzz in Asia or in Europe, it's like, okay, great. When when can we see this in America? We really want to see this in America. And I've seen two persistent rumors, which I think each hold some weight and some truth to them. One being that the Japanese distributor wanted a lot of money for Battle Royale to sell the rights to get it over to the States. And a lot of the big American studios were quite scared off by the initial premise and the violence of it. And a lot of the smaller studios that would have like happily taken it on and distributed the hell out of it and gotten it into the market couldn't afford it. And you also have to keep in mind, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, the Columbine shootings happened in 1999. And I remember I was just starting high school here in Toronto, and it was really scary. I I remember watching CNN, and I remember people being terrified. It seemed to be You know, gun violence has happened ever since guns were invented, but this was such a clear-cut example of how it can destroy a generation. And there was so much fear. There was so much finger-pointing. It was basically a new version of the witch hunts. And so many studios, they got scared by it. And I even read an article which said that uh, one studio did some testing with Battle Royale in 2000 after it had been released, brought it over to America, got it translated, showed it to an audience. And they got scared. They didn't like it. They responded so negatively because of that relationship between Columbine and Battle Royale. And then I also read that New Line Cinema was working on a remake or an Americanized version of Battle Royale well before The Hunger Games even came out as a book. And I believe this was in 2006. They were in pre-production on it or just developing it. And I believe it was the Virginia Tech shootings that happened. And again, they just they got scared off. It's it, There was too much violence for them to feel comfortable adding this into the marketplace and into pop culture. That's right. So in lieu of an American remake at the time, we got The Hunger Games, and I'm frankly okay with that. Now, some of the similarities between The Hunger Games and Battle Royale, the glory of Battle Royale, in my opinion, is in these very accessible characters whose deaths are deeply felt, and and it provokes very meaningful questions with this large cast. It's a, would you do like him? What would you do like him? What would you do in this situation? And Battle Royale really runs the gamut of different reactions to this. Whereas in The Hunger Games, the characters are a lot less developed. We're only supposed to know and care about the few of them who are the underdogs doing what's right. Because the only moral option is to kill when absolutely necessary, which is thrilling and heroic in the American way, rather than Battle Royale's nihilistic tragedy and satire. I feel like it's worth mentioning that both the Hunger Games and Battle Royale center upon this couple of this unrequited love. I'm not sure if that's a coincidence of narrative device that we care about them because there's a last man standing type thing. And I guess it's you want there to be two last men standing and it makes the whole situation even more unfair. It's pretty unfair to begin with. So I'm not sure about that. But the first Hunger Games film takes place in the arena. We've got Katniss in the arena. Somehow she emerges as this political hero. In the second film, she's put back in the arena, even though she's gained some celebrity status as a victor. And that kind of, I feel like, it taps into Battle Royale, where you've got Shogo and you've got Kazuo, who you get an idea might have done this before, or they at least know about it. So they've got a leg up. They're a little bit well-informed. And then in the third Hunger Games movie, it's all-out political war. The Mockingjay has been constructed as a political figure, and she's going to bring down the capital. And I feel like that's something that we tap into when we move along to the sequel, where Noriko and Shuya, having survived the first battle royale, are now fugitives. They are loathed by the adults and followed by a certain segment of the kids, which we're going to get into right now. いい銭は八組と負け組を二つしかありません。負け組は用がないので死んでもらいます。なんで俺たちは戦わなきゃなんねえんだよ。今みんなが付けてる組は同じ出席番号の人と連動してて一人が死ぬともう一人も自動的に
共に立てそして共に戦おう俺たちは今全ての大人に宣戦布告する戦争なんかしてんだろう So Battle Royale 2, Requiem, was released in 2003, three years after the original came out. And it was again developed and worked on by Kinji Fukasaku, the original director and co writer, and also co written by his son, Kenta. Now, in a really terrible turn of events, Kinji was able to film one day. And then very unfortunately passed away. So the production had to kind of grapple with this, turn everything around, because it's, you know, time is money when you're on film sets. And Kenta took over and directed the film. Battle Royale 2 picks up where Shuya has formed a resistance group called the Wild Seven. And Kitano's daughter has joined a class, a kind of delinquent class that she thinks will be selected for Battle Royale. And of course, they are. But Battle Royale has changed. In this instance, Battle Royale is not about the kids fighting each other, but rather sending them to the island where the Wild Seven are hiding out and forcing them to act as an army to take them down. And there is some interesting elements where the US gets involved and is threatening to bomb them and take them down, but it's kind of this like last stand against a resistance movement. And you've got the Wild Seven trying to save the kids and get them on their side and work together. But then you have Katano's daughter who is still angry and pissed off at what this system has created, and she tries to take it out on the Wild Seven. And of course, it all comes to a weird, strange head where the resistance is still the resistance and they're still fighting in the end, but to what they don't know. Battle Royale 2 is a slog to get through. Those of you who Watched it in preparation for this episode, like we did. You have our condolences. We struggled with it too. The themes that were so subtle and well done in Battle Royale are approached in a really heavy way that doesn't have the nice light satire that makes for an enjoyable and watchable movie. The main themes are obviously terrorism, there's an anti US. It's understandable when you consider that this came out in 2003. It came out after 9 11. It came out after Battle Royale had so much difficulty getting into the West for political reasons such as that. So I really feel like the idea of sending kids to fight for a cause they don't believe in was really explicit in the fact that you've got these children actually decked out. In army fatigues and gear, and they've got their helmets and they've got their guns, and they're like, fuck, I don't even know how to fucking use this. And so you did have pathos where it was just kind of like, fuck, that's actually how a lot of soldiers are. They're just thrown into it. What in the flying fuck am I doing? And I have to kill who now? And then when they finally encounter the Wild Seven, they are almost won over before a little bit of paranoia sets in and things kind of go to shit to the point that the only ones left are Shiori, Kitano's daughter, who isn't convinced. You always feel like she's going to put a bullet in the back of Shuya's head any minute, and she could have and should have, and that's kind of one of the main plot holes of the film. But there's also Takuma, who is this character played by this kid who overacts every single thing. His facial expressions are, he just eats up the screen and he's really hard to get behind. It's a school of delinquents and they're punks. And once again, we're faced with this really, you don't know this is happening. You guys are the school for bad kids, and you didn't think you would be chosen for Battle Royale, too? What the fuck? Yeah, someone literally came to your school because she thought that this is the next class that's going to get selected for Battle Royale. So, in the end, I guess the big overarching message is you know, you keep running, and the next generations are going to be maybe brainwashed to think that your cause is bullshit, but you can win them over. That's really the best I can do with Battle Royale 2 <laughs> Requiem. 
Yeah, and I think the ultimate statement for me of Battle Royale, and even, you know, to a certain extent, Battle Royale 2, is that it's just commenting on a system and a social structure that breeds violence and competition and the fallout of those two really intense emotions and how it can devastate entire generations. But I would like to say that while the films are nihilistic, I think there is a real change happening in Japan. And again, from what I've read and the research I've done, in March 2012, 20,000 peaceful protesters in Japan marched against nuclear testing. They organized and they fought and they used their voices to try to make the world a better place, not through violence, through really peaceful means for the most part. And they sought change. And I think, you know, it's that kind of spirit that the kids who did the best in Battle Royale had. And I like to think that it's that trickle-down effect as art influences life and as the kids who were young when they probably saw Battle Royale, the age of those kids in the game, are now really thinking positively and critically about the world they live in. So that's our episode. I hope we did the movie justice because it's really near and dear to Alex and my hearts and we really enjoyed doing it. Next episode, I am so excited to announce that we are going to drop a horror heavyweight that has been on our minds since the beginning of the podcast. We knew we were going to get to it one day, and we had to wait for maybe a special event to happen, maybe some annual event that horror fans tend to gather and watch the seminal horror classics that define the genre. And all I can say, Andrea, is that I think October is an excellent time for an exorcism. That's right. We are taking on The Exorcist. It's going to be a massive episode. We are going to channel Captain Howdy, and we are going to talk it up, down, and inside out. So be sure to join us for that next month. A great way to stay on top of when our episodes come out is to follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, on Twitter. We're also on Reddit. We have a subreddit called r slash faculty of horror, where all these chats go down, and you can keep up with us there. And we are so grateful for all of you listeners. You guys write, you interact with us. We love working with you guys to essentially create this podcast. Without you guys, uh, we wouldn't be here. And one thing you can do to help us out as we keep moving forward with this podcast is if you haven't already, and a lot of you have, so that's terrific, but please go to iTunes in whatever your country is. And if you like us, write a review. We love reviews. They're a huge help to us, and we appreciate the feedback quite a bit. So we will talk to you again next month. We encourage you not to remove your collars. They are set to detonate if they are tampered with. And until next month, office hours are closed. (laughs) 